good morning. Um, one, one thing before I jump in that I should also say that I neglected to say there is um, on behalf of Emmanuel Baptist Church, we just want to say thank you. Um, in a very real way, the reality is, is we wouldn't be able to do the ministry that we're doing if it wasn't for support from partners like you guys, and you guys have been extraordinarily generous to us. And so there are tons of people who are hearing the gospel as a result of your investment in us. So we just want to say thank you. Um, today we're going to be in 1 Peter 1, um, verses 3 through 12 in chapter 1. Um, and the context here, I won't go too deep into it, but Peter the apostle is writing to a church that's experiencing suffering and oppression, and he wants to give them a vision of a living hope to hold on to in the midst of difficulty. Um, before I jump into the text, I want to pray for us as we prepare to hear the word. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do worship you for being a God that makes saints in the land, and that we as a community of saints, both locally and universally, can rejoice in our fellowship, our fellowship in Christ. And we do thank you for sending us a living hope through the person of Jesus Christ, a living hope that we can cling to, that we can trust in, that we can hope in. And we do pray that the reality of what Jesus has done for us will become clearer day by day, week by week, year by year, as we get ready to see him face to face. Today, as we think about what your word tells us in 1 Peter, I do pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word truly and clearly. Pray that I would honor you in what I say. And if there's anything that I say that would not be helpful or not be true, that it would fly away from our minds and that we would focus on the truth of what your word says. We do pray that our thoughts and our words would be pleasing and honoring of you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 155 AD, an elderly man, about 86 years old, named Polycarp, sat down to dinner in ancient Rome, preparing to die. You see, like his Savior, he had been betrayed by friends days earlier, and the Roman soldiers were on their way. And so he sat and he ate, and the soldiers came through the door to take him to be executed. And so he said to the people around him, bring food for the soldiers and asked the soldiers if he might pray for a few hours. And they gave him leave to do so. After this, he's brought to the authorities. He's brought to a proconsul, a man with much authority in Roman society. And the proconsul says to Polycarp, swear and I will let you go. Reproach Christ. Polycarp turns to the proconsul and he says to him, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? As the story goes, the Romans then take Polycarp to the arena and threaten him to be killed by beasts or burned by fire. And they elect to burn him with fire. And so they put him on the pyre of wood, preparing to burn him alive, to martyr him. And they're going to nail him to the wood. But Polycarp says, there's no need for that. I will stay here. The Lord that has saved me will give me strength to stay. So they don't nail him to the wood, but they light the fire. 
And as the story goes, the fire does not consume him, so the soldiers stabbed him, killing him, making him a martyr for Jesus Christ. Question that arises from an illustration like this is what can fuel such a sacrifice? What could compel a man to stay on burning wood as it threatens to consume him? Only a glorious hope, only a transcendent hope, only a hope of true salvation. It's only a hope that Christ can provide. And our text today gives us some insight about this hope, about this great salvation. Let's read it together. This is 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. The main point I'm going to argue, that the idea that I want us to walk away from, to chew on, to savor as we leave today from this text is simply this. Stick to Christ's salvation and suffering and stay focused on our living hope. Stick to Christ's salvation and suffering and stay focused on our living hope. We get a, a wonderful overview of this hope, of this salvation that God offers us through Christ in this text, and we see our God as a saving God. And so beneath our big idea, I have five points. Don't let that scare you. It won't be that long. But these five points talk about this salvation and what it means they are, first, salvation springs from God's mercy. Salvation springs from God's mercy. Second, salvation comes through Jesus Christ. Third, salvation is sure in Christ. Four, salvation is our secure and steady hope. And five, salvation has been sought and seen throughout the history of God's people. These points show us why we can stick to Christ's salvation, why we can have trust in it, why we can have faith in it, 
because it is sure, it is steadfast, rock solid. The rescue that God had planned from the beginning is totally reliable because it's dependent on him, the rock of salvation, completely reliable. He is the good king, the risen lamb, the great I am. We can trust him and his salvation because he is trustworthy. Our salvation reflects the very character of God, his heartbeat for his people. And that's what we see in our first point. Salvation springs from God's mercy. We see this in the beginning of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So why does God save people? He rescues people because it's consistent with his character. It's who he is. He is merciful. It's funny, as I was preparing the text this week, I know that God is merciful. He is mercy. He's perfectly merciful. But I, I thought to myself, what, what do we mean by mercy? It's amazing how many times these words I've heard countless times and can't really think of a working definition. So I thought about it. And I read some dictionary definitions. And what I, came, what I came away with is that God's mercy is his compassionate forgiveness towards his people, despite the reality that we don't deserve it. It's very much linked to the concept of grace or unmerited favor. You see, God moves towards us, loves us, has mercy on us, forgives us, despite our unworthiness of that forgiveness. In the simplest terms, he doesn't give us what we deserve. We consider Adam and Eve when they fell in Genesis 3, when they sin against God and the relationship between Adam and Eve and God is fractured. He doesn't immediately strike them dead, but rather he provides clothes for them in what might be the first act of social justice in the church's history. The Lord himself provides clothing for Adam and Eve. And he preserves them and gives them life. He delays the punishment for their sin. This is mercy. The Lord is also merciful to the entire world, Christian or non-Christian alike. You see, the rain falls on the just and unjust alike. He is slow to anger. Rain falls, crops grow, people eat because the Lord is merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve. But the gospel is uniquely a picture of God's mercy. God makes the world and everything in it. If we look up, he made it. If we look down, he made that too. And despite uh, the Lord giving us everything we have, including our lives, our breath, the world around us, we fell into sin. We took creation and the gifts of the creator, but reject the one who gave it to us. And without mercy, we would have received just punishment. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace, we have been saved and raised us, have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, Christ sees us in our sin and he's not revolted. He comes near. He, his heart goes out to us because he is merciful. He lives the life that we cannot live. He dies the death that we could not endure in order to give mercy to God's people. And all we need to do is turn to him in faith, away from our sins, and put our dependence on him to be saved, to receive this mercy. The gospel is God's masterwork, his pinnacle, his magnum opus of mercy. It shows us who he is. And he achieves this masterpiece through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is our second point. So our first point, salvation springs from God's mercy. Why does he save us? Because he's merciful. Our next point, salvation comes through Jesus Christ, answers the how. How does God decide to save us? Through Jesus Christ. We see this in the second part of verse 3. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Nine simple words that cover the most stunning miracle in all of human history. God's mercy answers the question why. The resurrection of Christ answers the question how. The resurrection is the means by which God saves his people. And it's helpful to remember that the person writing this letter is Peter. The same Peter who saw Jesus Christ crucified. And not that long prior, testified that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of the holy God. So Peter rightly recognizes Jesus as Messiah, and then the Romans kill him. So all of Peter's hopes crumble when Christ was nailed to that cross. This is a man who met Moses and Elijah on a mountain with Christ. He saw Lazarus raised to life. He saw the blind given sight. But then Christ dies. His heart stops beating. His lungs stop taking in oxygen. And Peter and the disciples were left with dead hopes. They, they testified to the reality that Jesus was the Messiah, but how can the Messiah die? Everything that they had hoped for in those three days seemingly turns to ash. But this wasn't the end. Jesus doesn't stay dead. We don't have dead hopes. We have a living hope. Peter heard from women that were at the tomb that Jesus wasn't there. And so he went running. His hope lived again. He saw an empty tomb because Jesus had risen. Now, Peter had seen resurrection before, but this is a different type of resurrection. If you recall Lazarus' resurrection, Jesus bids him to come out of the tomb, and Lazarus comes bound in grave clothes. It's a humorous thought in my mind of a man hopping, wrapped up like a mummy, out of a tomb. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. But Jesus' resurrection... The clothes are folded neatly on the slab in the tomb, and Christ is there no more. He does not need help. He is still not bound by his unresurrected body. You see, Christ is the firstborn from the dead. 
And we too, if we are in Christ, will be resurrected like him. Christ's resurrection wasn't fleeting. Lazarus died again. He wasn't saved from death for all eternity, but Christ defeated death forever. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. And the beauty of the resurrection is that Christ shares it with his people. If, we're, if you're in Christ, we will, we will rise again like he did. A pastor named Charles Spurgeon put it this way, the doctrine of the resurrection is full of joy to the bereaved. It clothes the, gra- it clothes the grave with flowers and wreaths the tomb with unfading laurel. The sepulcher shines with a light brighter than the sun and death grows fair as we say in full assurance of faith, I know that my brother shall rise again. I know my brothers and sisters will rise again because my Savior rose. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ is how God brings about our salvation. It comes out of his great mercy. But that's not all. You see, salvation can't be taken from us. It is sure. And this is our third point, that salvation is sure in Christ. Verses 4 and 5. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's take this section word by word, phrase by phrase. What is this inheritance? What is it marked by? What is it like? First, it is imperishable. Death is dead. Rust cannot erode. Moths cannot assume. Decay cannot chip away at our salvation. It's imperishable. It can't be destroyed. It can't die. And why? Why is it indestructible? Because it is held by the Almighty God. It's important to think of the converse of this, which is the hopes that the world offers. Whatever that might be, material things, these things cannot last. They will all fade. The scriptures tell us that this world will burn. The hope that the world offers cannot persist beyond this life, but not so with Christ. His hope is forever. Secondly, we see that our inheritance is undefiled. Our salvation in Christ is pure. It's unmarred by sin. And so if you're here and you feel stained by sin, marked by sin, know that salvation in Christ washes that away. If you have a sin history and you, these things, these memories, they flash to your mind and you remember mistakes you made, sins you fell into, and you feel unworthy or dirtied by those things, know that your salvation is undefiled. You are cleansed. When the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ transferred to you by virtue of his life, death, and resurrection. 
Likewise, if you feel nostalgia for that sin, you say to yourself, I wouldn't do that again. Boy, do I miss it. Those days were fun. Know that that sin is what caused and necessitated Christ to give his life. Pray that God would give you the same mind about sin that he has. But if you're here and you feel marred or sullied or wounded by sin done against you, know that your shame has been nailed to the cross and is no more. Christ makes us clean. Our salvation is untouched by sin, our own or others. And so if you've suffered as a result of someone else's sin, know that there is comfort and cleanliness in the cross. Jesus wipes it away. Our salvation is undefiled. But it is also unfading. The Christian is as saved today as he or she will be in a million years. In heaven, the brilliance and radiance of our joy of being with our Savior does not diminish. Not one iota, not one dot. The joy of being with Jesus will never fade. In fact, Scripture seems to suggest it will only increase. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote about this in his, his novel, The Last Battle, which is the last of the Narnia series. And so all the people and the animals have come to the land of Aslan. They're rejoicing. And he describes the scene like this. So they, all the people, all the animals, all the characters that we've come to know and love. So they run faster and faster till it was more like flying than running. And even the eagle overhead was going no faster than they. And they went through winding valley after winding valley and up the steep sides of hills and faster than ever down the other sides, following the river and sometimes crossing it and skimming across mountain lakes as if they were living speedboats. Till at last at the far end of one long lake, which looked as blue as a turquoise, they saw a smooth green hill Its sides were as steep as the sides of a pyramid, and round the very top of it ran a green wall. But above the wall rose the branches of trees whose leaves looked like silver and their fruit like gold. Farther up and further in roared the unicorn, and no one held back. This is the future that God invites us to, farther up and further in. There is no end to the depths of God. We can spend eternity exploring him and never get to the end. The joys to be found in Christ will only increase as we spend more time with him. This is the future of the Christian, farther up and further in to God. And again, unlike this world, which is corrupted by sin, and holds no permanent delight. Conversely, God does. And we can have trust and faith that this salvation is safe because it's kept in heaven for us by God himself. We are guarded and guided into eternity by God if we are in Christ. Our salvation cannot be taken from us. It is held by the most secure hand. Neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, as it says in Romans 8. Who can overpower the Lord? No one is like him in power and majesty. He himself secures our salvation. 
our inheritance is not only kept by God, our, our inheritance is God. So who can take God away from us? Unlike this world that can't promise us that we'll have anything in a year or a week or a day, God is there forever. There's no material possession that any of us have that could not disappear in a moment. A simple phone call that levels us. But what will always be there is God and his salvation through Jesus Christ. Finally, we see that the text says, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this salvation that we have through Christ now is going to be revealed in its fullness at the end of all things. What does this mean? Simply put, the best is yet to come. I knew uh, a couple once, um, they were, the Lord blessed them with triplets, which is a little intimidating if you're a new parent. Three boys, all at once, none of them on the same sleep schedule. They also had an older daughter who was about five years older. So they, got, they went from one to four, like overnight, which if you're a parent, or even if you're not, you can imagine how that would be difficult. And the, the father was a finance guy. Uh, he did stocks and investments. And the first thing his mind goes to is like, oh man, I'm going to pay for college for three kids at the same time. That seems, this is like seven years ago. So it's, gotten, it's only gotten worse. He's like, I have no idea how I'm going to pay for this. Uh, a couple of weeks later, they get a call um, that their grandfather, who passed away, had left an inheritance to cover the entirety of college expenses for their four children and their retirement. So they went from not knowing how they're going to pay college to having the biggest financial stressor taken care of in totality and then way more beyond that. They don't have to save for much of anything now. College is taken care of. Retirement's taken care of. And the relief to these two people was palpable and made things way easier. Imagine the relief and the joy that comes from knowing that your biggest financial fears are taken care of. Well, I have something to tell you. The inheritance that is available in Christ is far richer than college or retirement. It's wealth beyond imagining. It's eternal life in a city where streets are paved with gold. That's not to con convey the idea that we're all going to be material, materially rich in heaven. It's to convey the idea that material wealth doesn't matter because we have so much more. This is the inheritance that is waiting for the Christian. We can't bankrupt it. We can't blow through the riches. Even if you're not great with money, you can't spend it all. And more importantly, you can't outsin the grace of God. So if you're someone who thinks the Lord couldn't love me, I've done X, Y, or Z, the truth is, is you can't outsin his grace. Its depths are infinite. And so if you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to participate in this inheritance, the riches of the Lord. If you're lost in your sin, know that God delights to rescue. It's from his character. He's merciful. All you need to do 
is place your faith in Christ and trust him and pursue him for the rest of your life and you will have an inheritance that is undefiled, imperishable, and inexhaustible. So our point so far, salvation springs from God's mercy. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ. Salvation is sure in Christ. And fourth, salvation is our secure and steady hope. We see this in verses six through nine, which say, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Sufferings now, glories to follow. That's how one commentator put it. Suffering now, glories to follow. Peter wants Christians who face the first to remember the second. Suffering always has an end date for the Christian, and it serves to refine our faith. The theologian Edmund Clowney, who's been extremely helpful, if anything good from this sermon that isn't scripture, it's probably from Ed Clowney. He said this, the fires of affliction or persecution will not reduce our faith to ashes. Fire does not destroy gold. It only removes combustible impurities. Yet even gold will at last vanish with the whole of this created order. Faith is infinitely more precious and more enduring. Like a jeweler putting his most precious metal in the crucible, so God proves us in the furnace of trial and affliction. The genuineness of our faith shines from the fire to his praise. Suffering only happens under the sovereignty of God. God is in control. A question I had as I wrote this is, how is that comfort? If I'm in the midst of suffering, how is that happening under God's sovereignty comfort for the soul that is afflicted? I think there's a few reasons. The first is because it operates for his purposes. It's not meaningless. For those who don't believe in God, they suffer and they die and their families are hurt and harmed and they don't have a reason for it. They, can't, they don't have an explanation. There's no comfort there. But God works things all together for the good of those who love him. And so we know in the midst of suffering that God is still working his purposes. We don't, we don't get an explanation. Job, an extended discourse of this very question, why, why am I suffering? He doesn't get a clear answer. But he does realize the most important thing, that he can trust God in the midst of suffering because God is good and merciful. Secondly, we can take comfort in the reality that God doesn't choose his people because we are high and mighty and powerful. And because he doesn't choose us because we're high and mighty, 
We can have faith he won't abandon us when we stumble and fall. He won't leave us when we're hurt and broken. He's steadfast in his love to his people. We can also take comfort in in the reality that Christ came and subjected himself to suffering on our behalf. He's a man acquainted with sorrows and familiar with grief. The path of the Christian life follows the path of Christ's life. He suffered first, then entered into his glory. So must we. So in our suffering, as Christians, we can remember that it is passing away. It will end. And the Lord is working even in the midst of unbearable pain. We might never know why, but we can have complete confidence in Christ's love for his people and that he knows better for us and he wants good for us. This is the truths that the scriptures testify and we can rest in that. And he hears our prayers of lament. He loves us. He wants to hear our tears and our afflictions. The Psalms say that the Lord kept David's tears in a bottle. A vivid picture of the reality that God is very aware of the suffering of his saints. We can come to him and ask why, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? then we can end that by turning to trust in his promises that he will never leave nor forsake us. So we can stick to Christ's salvation and focus on a living hope because it comes from God's mercy. We know that salvation comes through Christ and that it is sure in him. And And we know that our salvation is our secure and steady hope in the midst of suffering and tribulations. And finally, we see that salvation has been sought and seen throughout the history of God's people. Verses 10 and 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. All of Scripture points to Christ. As the Jesus Storybook Bible says, every story whispers his name. The Scriptures serve us by pointing us to Jesus. Abraham has a faith that God will keep his promise to bless all nations through his descendants. And he believed. David trusted in the Lord's promise to put a king on the throne from his line that would reign forever. The prophets testified to the restoration of God's people after exile. How are these things accomplished? Through the person of Jesus Christ. The authors of scripture long to see the salvation that is freely offered to us in Jesus. The Old Testament bears witness to Christ. And almost, and almost as an aside, the, the text in 1 Peter says, this salvation are things into which angels long to look. What does that mean? Ephesians 3.5 talks, sorry, Ephesians 3.10 talks about the church being the manifold wisdom of God 
testifying to who he is to the rulers and authorities over the universe. In other words, why do angels want to look into this salvation? Why is the church demonstrating the manifold wisdom of God? Because it tells us something about his character. And so angels themselves want to know more about God, and so they're looking at the church. They're looking at the salvation of the saints and saying, wow, these cosmic beings, more powerful than we can possibly imagine, marvel at the salvation that God offers. And so Christians are heirs, receivers, blessed descendants of these faithful saints that wrote of God's faithful promises that he kept. They labored to bear witness to what the Lord has done, a witness that we read in his word today. And so when we read the scriptures, we have to remember where we are in the history of God's people. We are just as linked to the history of God's people as ancient Israel was. We look at the Old Testament as promises made, and we look at the New Testament as promises kept in the person of Jesus. This helps us understand the scripture in light of the whole of scripture. I think it's worth repeating that when we see promises in the OT, in the Old Testament, we remind ourselves that Christ fulfills those promises in part now and in, in, in fullness when he comes again at the end of all things. So as we conclude our time together, I think it's worth remembering that our hope is a living hope. Our hope is anchored in the past. Jesus rose. Our hope remains in the present. Jesus lives our hope is completed in the future. Jesus is coming. We can stick to Christ's salvation because he sticks to us. And we can trust in his salvation because he's the one who keeps it and guards it. Salvation springs from God's mercy, showing us who he is. It comes through the person of Jesus Christ, pouring his blood to save us. It is sure in Christ because he keeps us on our behalf. And his salvation has been sought and seen through the history of the people of God. And for the Christian, that includes us. So as we leave this place, let us remember that our hope is not dead. It is alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for sending Jesus to save us. And we are grateful for a salvation that is imperishable, undefiled, and unable to be taken from us. We pray that we would cling to it all the more as the days go by, that we would remember who we are in Christ. And then that would motivate us to share the good news of what Jesus has done with all of those around us, that they too can have a blessed inheritance that will bestow on them more than they could ever imagine, that we would faithfully bear witness to the people around us like the saints in the Old Testament bore witness to us. We pray that we would be molded and conformed in the image of Christ and that we would forever rejoice in his salvation. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.